This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Welcome to Spice Bags, where three opinionated ladies, Blanca, May and me, Dee, have a dish about food in Ireland from an international perspective. This is a very special episode because... We have a very special guest. May, will you tell yes. us a little bit about him? I'm thrilled to actually introduce Jim Osland, um, who is a multi-award winning writer and editor, also my former boss. Um, no pressure. Yeah, <laughs> no pressure. He is the former editor-in-chief of the American magazine Sever and Rodale's Organic Life. His first cookbook was Cradle of Flavor, which explored Indonesia, Malaysia, and Singapore and won him the James Beard and IACP Cookbook Award. He is the author of the much-lauded memoir, Jimmy Neurosis, and the author of World Food Book Series, published by Ten Speeds Press, Penguin, of which Mexico City is the first and is currently on the shelves. He is a mentor to budding journalists, many of whom have gone on to have dazzling careers of their own. He has been committed to the role that photography plays in food journalism, but for Jim Osland, food plays a role with people and a place. As rereading his memoir and his cookbooks attests, I realized that Jim is, above all, a storyteller and a charmer with a youthful capacity for exploration, empathy, and wonder. So listeners, let me tell you, when we were emailing Jim, I said, I have a cover, I have a, an issue of Saveur, the Grease issue on my desk at the moment. He emailed me back and he said, this is an issue that was published in 2010. And then he emailed back and said, you're not going to believe this, but I have the same issue. Um, so we were saying, oh my goodness, what is, what are the chances of that? I have maybe, I don't know, well, 100 suburbs. I have the same issue <laughs> sitting, that one. sitting on my but, desk um, May at that was point. Saying... I didn't just have the issue. I had it sitting on my desk uh, alone. That's the peculiar part yeah. of, the, of the very, yeah. very many. It was for, it was for, some, for, for a separate project <laughs> yeah. that I'm working on, but... But, but that had been also a meaningful issue of, of the years that I was working at Sever. That would have been a particularly meaningful issue to work on. Will you tell us a little bit about this issue and why it was a meaningful one for, well, for you? Well, you know, I, it came, we produced that issue. We, meaning me and the staff at Sever which was a very small staff, only about nine, 10, 11 people. We were, we were a really tight, dedicated crew of people. And um, my mom had been very ill. And in fact, she passed away just before we began full production on that issue. So it was a, 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 time, a time in my life, my gosh, I mean, even saying these words, I, I almost barely remember that time of, a time of my life. It was, it was my, my mother's death was quite, quite traumatic. I mean, basically, I, I, I have very limited recall of the first months after, except we had to produce the, that issue of Sever. We, we had no choice. It had to go to press. And um, very, very quickly, we put it together. It was almost like a dream how everything worked out. And before we knew it, we had reporters and photographers on, on the ground, basically in every corner of Greece. And I was one of those reporters and photographers. I went and shot and photographed a, ser uh, a series of articles that appear in different parts of the magazine that were largely created in the northwest part of Greece, what's called Epirus, right next to the Albanian border. We were also in Corfu. We were also in Athens. We, we, we were a variety of other places, but mainly I was in the northwest. And I did not know Greek food prior to that trip. Right after my mother had passed, and I, in fact, really had never been to the country, and so it was unfamiliar. It was just a vast unknown. Yet it embraced 
me so much during this this really rough time, honestly. And um, I remember a highlight was a picnic lunch that a family that we'd gotten connected with. By we, I mean my, my traveling buddy, uh, a fellow named Marino, who I've known since college days, who is Greek and lives in Athens. He and I were up in the Northwest together. And um, we found this family, a uh, working class family. One of the sons had a small cheese concern, but these were just fantastically salt of the earth people who invited us on a family picnic, um, which was at the top of a hillside. Um, at that time, it was spring, and there, there were wildflowers everywhere at the top of this hillside, just filling the air with the fragrance of Northwest Greece. And we sat down there in this wonderful brush, and we had this lunch that had been prepared by the mother of all of these classic dishes of that part of Greece. You know, Greece, of course, like everywhere else in the world, is super regional in the way it eats and approaches food. And these were dishes that we were eating that were particular to there. And it was just so moving to be enveloped in that fragrance, the good food, the warmth and love of that family. And, um, it was, a, it was, a, it was, it was, a, it was a transitional moment at a time of great transition for me. Actually, Actually, Jim, I know that this is this was a question that we have wanted to ask, and we're going to go back to your beautiful book about Mexico City. Um, but I think that your observations on being in Greece, I think um, we were curious about your thoughts about sort of responsible and loving cultural appropriation. How that you know, like you said, you knew nothing about Greece, and you you were you were there on the ground. Um, how does one do sort of respectful reporting in a country? where you may not necessarily belong or know anything about or even speak the language. And I feel like you're, you are somebody who is quite the master <laughs> And I would love Thanks. to hear I don't, your thoughts. I don't, I, don't, I don't know about that. <laughs> Monster of nothing. But, you know, every situation has its own, its own special realities, its own, its own orbit. Every situation is, is, is its own universe. And so there's no one size fits all. But, I mean, this is something, you know, that, that, that I've kind of done really without even being aware of it my entire life where I just, I, I move into situations like it could be I'm, I'm, I've just arrived in a village in Northwest Greece with my college buddy, Marino. And, you know, we, we sit in a restaurant and we make friends with the waitress. And it turns out that the waitress has a cousin who has a cheese, a cheese farm or they make cheese and he raises goats. And, you know, these, these, it's, 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 it's the serendipity of the universe that allows one access um, into situations, but here's the thing: it's like it's 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 just got to be meant to be that one is allowed access into a situation, and also that one is observant enough and friendly enough and appreciative enough. Food is this. Food and cooking, the things that human beings do in their kitchens, is um, what's so. What, what, there are a, a trillion fantastic things about food and cooking, of course. But one of the most, for me, important of those things is the fact that food is a common language that we all share. And I've always found that if you, if you, if you're, if if you're lucky enough to end up in the right kitchen with the right cooks, and it's all meant to be, that exchange that happens when you eat what the person has been cooking. I mean, it's like a, it's a kind of, it's a kind of sacrament, basically, as I see it. And so I've always approached my work and what I do like that. That's my kind of secret recipe. It sounds weird to even talk about this stuff because it's not something I, I really think about. I just do it. 
Um, and I, and I trust that the universe will put me in the right hands. Does that sound completely like I'm, I'm, I'm really from California. Is that confirmation of that? <laughs> I was, well, yeah, I was actually going to say, cause I was again, rereading your memoir. So by the way, listeners, like, um, James's memoir is about his time being a San Francisco punk, gay punk in the 80s and um and so dropping out of high school but a couple of times you refer to yourself as a chameleon and that you have learned in certain ways your father salesman wiles right that 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 is how you are able to get people to like you that there's a certain amount of mimicry there's also just being able to ask the right questions and being able to fit into well i don't the, the chameleon thing might or, 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 or might not not be true in, in my adult life. Um, I do know that mm. for me, when I'm confused about a place where I don't understand it, what I do is I go to a market, a local market, and I see how that place shops mm. and thinks about food. And then, you know, I start understanding those ingredients better. And, you know, I don't know if I'm exactly answering your question in a direct fashion. But, you know, I remember the the second time in my life that I traveled abroad, like really traveled abroad. The first trip was to Mexico when I was 17 years old. My dad and I did a three-week road trip Mm -hmm. when we drove from his house in Louisiana to, to the southern the southernmost Mexican border, like right next to Guatemala, the, the state of Chiapas, and that was my first trip outside of the outside of the United States. My second trip was two years later, and I'd been invited to Jakarta by a um, by a by a school friend who was Indonesian, and I was going to initially only go for a few months. It was. It was indefinite how long I was going to go for, but at that point it was going to be basically corresponding to the summer break at college. And um, I, in those first few weeks that I was there, really did not understand that place. Jakarta was about as upside down different Mm -hmm from what I knew and from what I came from as anything that I could possibly imagine. And in fact, it wasn't a particularly pleasant. This was, this is Jim. I don't want to interrupt you. Just like, Oh, just, I, I don't want to interrupt you, but just for everyone who doesn't know, this is, this is the, this is where Cradle of Flavor. My from, first yes. book later, which I didn't, which I, I didn't know. write for, for another 20, 25 years, but yeah, that's what my, my, my first book was. Okay. Was was okay, was sorry. about yeah, that? No, okay, but, sorry, no, no. Go back to Jakarta. Well, I'm, Jakarta I'm sorry was about that. was a uh, not particularly comfortable place. I didn't understand, you know, the just anything about it. It was just so different from California or, and New York, which are basically the two places that I really knew back then. And you know, there were street vendors coming by, you know, at two o'clock in the morning selling satay, and it was so hot and it was so noisy and um i was my 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 schoolmate came from a very illustrious family and i do not come from an illustrious family and um you know it was this grand house where we were and i felt really alienated and really like i didn't understand the language i was like what have i what have i Hmm. done do i want to go back sooner than three months Basically, it it was it was jarring, and um, over time, I found this kind of like passageway from my room to the kitchen in the house, and you know this, there was a large house staff. This was uh, you know in, in, in an illustrious family, as I said, and there were there were actually two dedicated cooks in the kitchen. Um, which was a sort of indoor-outdoor affair, very typical of how kitchens are in most of Indonesia and Southeast Asia. And I um, didn't speak a word of Indonesian. And basically, after a few weeks of just being sort of 
I don't know, kind of terrified of everything up in my room, I had this tiny little stool, this squat little stool that I found and I planted myself in the kitchen. And, you know, I'm sure at first the staff was like, what is this guy doing here? But over time, they grew, grew accustomed to me. And over, over time, I started to put words together. And I started to actually understand my first rudimentary Indonesian um, through the, these words that I was learning with the, with the kitchen staff. And um, then I started learning about different ingredients that they were showing me and then different dishes. And then I would sample the, these foods, these wonderful curries, these rich, fantastic lemongrass, crazy, herbal, beautiful curries that were being made and other dishes so many dishes and it was it was it was it was it was incredible and before before i knew it i was actually standing up at the stove and helping these people and chopping chopping vegetables and 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 mashing spice paste in the indonesian version of a mortar and pestle i began to understand indonesia you know, it was this portal through which I understood mm. this very, very far away, completely impossible to translate culture it became something that not only that I began to understand, but that I began to fall in love with. And that's when you're saying, right, that cooking that you understood that cooking is in certain ways a universal language, but you have to. I suppose that what the thing that you do is you you let yourself get immersed by that. Well, what what great what great pleasure though by that. to be you're able to do that, you know, and and the reward yeah. is of course yeah. you know being able to eat something delicious and share it with the people that you made it with. That's that's pretty. That's kind of like the height of mm. being a human being for me. Hmm. But Jim, I wanted to say something. You're almost, you know, your food writing is amazing, but you're almost like an ethnographer. You're observing these cultures and you're not there like to tell us about how you felt in that situation. Uh, this is, for example, in your Mexico book that, that I'm reading uh, currently. And I think that's something that at least in modern food writing or social media, it's almost impossible to, to find people like that. People always want to be at the center. And I think, you know, it's like, I'm eating this and here's a selfie. I'm here. And, you know, when I, when I was reading um, some passages about different families in Mexico, how you're observing them and you're using your skills as a writer to bring it to life and to explain this culture and the peculiar things that make Mexico what it is. And I think that's a real art form, and especially in the world that we live in. It's not a book about your Mexico and you're there and you're like, so um, May and I are trying to see like this, this, the debate of how people write about other cultures. Obviously I, I lived in China. So sometimes I talk about China or, and people are like, well, but shouldn't May be talking about China? So we don't believe that you need to be from that country to be a, a raconteur of the specialties or the foods of that country. But you do it very well. But it's also very different to the current that we see now in, in the food world where you know, people have to position themselves well, at every single scene. I, I liked that you so picked up tell, on the fact like, that there is, in fact, no me in the Mexico City volume of World Food, this mm -hmm. new series that I've begun. Not, not, nor will there ever be me in, 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 in any of these volumes. You know, there's a strange thing that's kind of happened, you know, especially in the last decade or so, where there's, there's a whole lot of me, 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 and my feelings. And um, there's a whole mm -hmm. lot of what we call in journalism, navel gazing that's occurred. And I was intent that yeah. these books really strive at their very core, at their very soul, to be documents of 
really fantastic, amazing, important local food cultures all around the world that they be these these deep dive looks at some of the world's greatest culinary cultures. You know, my guess, my hope, I should say more specifically, is that as time goes on and as enough of these volumes get produced, readers will see, oh, this isn't, you know, about like some guy or some foodie or whatever going to certain places and, you know, it's it's instead something that's richer and more human and will endeavor to show the great connections between cuisines that occur all over the world. I mean, who knew, for example, that there could be links between what is eaten and the way foods are cooked in Indonesia in the, in the, in the, in the various cultures and the many, many cultures of Indonesia, along with those in Mexico? Who could imagine that there would be these these culinary overlaps that that hmm. chilies would be grind, ground in essentially the same fashion in traditional kitchens using mortars and pestles and then and then comes the garlic and then comes you know it's 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 that's what this series is about and so thus it's certainly not a series about me and my opinions and my top 10 list of where to eat in mexico city today there are enough people (laughs) doing that thank you very much (laughs) and also i think more interestingly i think books like this are more long-lasting than books about the super trendy. I was also noticing your book is about real people. And of course you have, you know, Monica Patino, who's a Mexican chef, but it's about a Mexico that's timeless. Um, and I wanted to ask you why Mexico, what's the connection with Mexico? You seem to, you, you live there. Your, your first book in this world um, food series is about Mexico. Hey, can why I Mexico? ask you though, just a quick plug for Monica Patino, you know, Monica Patino's work. It sounds like Monica Patino is, I think, truly Mexico's most important chef. Um, she had uh, many, many restaurants. She's, she's had many restaurants under her belt. Um, she's done TV series, so many cookbooks. And she, so much more so than many others, I think, really holds the, this great key and continuum in, in, in understanding the cuisines of Mexico. I think she's very, very important, but she tends to not be recognized too much outside of Mexico. So I was really touched that, that you know her. Monica Patino, I think, is a very, very important figure in the, in the, in the culinary world of, of Mexico. Um, so blah, blah, blah. Let me actually now just answer the question about Mexico City, the, the why Mexico City question that you asked. Um, so as I began to think in my head, where, where, where in the world do we begin a a global cooking book series, a series that takes a look at the, some of the world's most significant traditional culinary cultures by traditional, I mean, ways of eating that have roots not just like a chefy worldview of like trendy ingredients and hot restaurants in great global cities that if you're lucky enough to eat at you can or have the money in it if you have enough money to eat at these restaurants you can eat at them no 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 instead where where are these these, these kind of hot spots of 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 world of world food ways where are they you know where 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 are their roots that go back not just 50 years but go back hundreds or even thousands of years and you know as i began to think of the possibilities of where to begin a series like that i thought of the place that i first knew outside of the United States, the first foreign place that I had traveled to, which was Mexico, on this this three-week 
road trip that my dad and I did in his beat-up station wagon from uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, where he was then living, all the way to, um, I can't believe we did this, even now as I'm saying this, I kind of crack up, all the way to the southernmost border of Mexico, um, the state of Chiapas. We drove in his not very operational station wagon that broke down two times along the way you know we had to stay like a couple of days waiting for car parts each each of the times that it, that it broke down my dad took off work for three weeks to do this and it was it was for me seismic I only know I only knew at that point interstates driving across America or county county highways, not country roads through the entire length of Mexico. And back then, there were no real highways in Mexico. You basically had to stop in every single village and every single town along the way. You drove through 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 Main Street, and um, this this trip. And what I saw during those three weeks and the markets that we went into and the street food that we ate and the restaurants that we walked into, I mean, it was completely transformational for me. It was like the the door had basically been blown open. It was the first other place that, 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 that I was really exposed to. And it's certainly the first place that I fell in love with. I felt passionately in love. When we arrived in Mexico City, parked the car and, and, and walked to the Zocalo, the main square of Mexico City, which I believe is the world second largest um, public public space outside of Tiananmen Square in Beijing and it sits right next to the cathedral and the main offices of, of the federal government and also um, ruins of the of the great uh, city of Tenochtitlan which preceded uh, modern Mexico City and I felt home in this place. I felt like I had arrived and I felt that as I began world food that it was only obvious that this place that had moved me so much as a human being that I pay honor and homage to it. And um, I've been to Mexico City more than, oh my gosh, 30 times, 35 times. When I lived in New York or California, I would come down to Mexico City. I would sort of secretly take flights down here all, all of the time just to get a fix, to get to get Mexico back in me. And um, after um, we began uh, photographing and, and putting together World Food Mexico City, and I'd been in there for a few months, I sort of sat back and I was like, wait a minute, I can live here. I don't have to live in New York anymore. I can live here. And yeah. so um, I got an apartment and, and I stayed. And, you know, I felt when I was 17 years old that Mexico was very much a part of me. And I still feel that today. Jim, I wanted to ask you, um, and it's kind of, I suppose it's two, there's, there's two sides to the question is, who are some of the favorite people that you have encountered? Um, and also, who has been the most challenging, most challenging people, most challenging place and why? So I want like, so just, you know, story tell. I think you can probably tell even just for from talking with me for for, for, for a few here that I, I like people. People are great. People are just like the best things on earth. They're incredibly, they're incredibly interesting. Even the ones that can be slightly irritating to me personally, everybody is interesting and every place that they inhabit is interesting for me. I love people. And I mean, you know, when I found out that I could kind of, after that Mexico City trip, Mexico trip, when I discovered that I could, you know, sort of you know, pop around the world and just fall into, 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 into different situations where, where, wherever I was, I didn't have to like, you know, stick to a, a, a guidebook itinerary. I could, I could explore, I could explore the world and I could be a part of it. 
because, you know, because I was a citizen of it, because I am a citizen of it. That was, that was, that was a great, great epiphany. And it's one that I've, you know, kind of always luckily so far, knock on wood, here you, here I am actually doing that because I do have my, my superstitions, but I, you know, I've never really had any crummy situations if what you're inferring is a kind of recalcitrance like people maybe not immediately flinging open the door to their kitchen and say you know an offering you know to 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 have me watch and participate in some some family dish well in fact when i was putting together the Paris volume, which comes out this October of World Food. Paris is one of my favorite, favorite places on earth. And the French are certainly my, among my very, 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 very favorite um, people on any, anywhere on the, on the planet. I'm a Francophile. Um, but putting the kind of book together that I wanted to put put together in Paris, that took a few months. It's not something that just happened overnight. In Mexico City, it literally happened overnight. I mean, every, 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 every person I knew or met was like, sure, we'll, we'll, we'll be a part of the book. When, when are you guys coming? What are, you, what, are, what are we cooking? You know, but when, 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 I, when, I, when I applied that to Paris, but didn't that didn't happen so easily? Paris is a is a is a more Paris is a more private place. It it it's it's once 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 yeah. once one once one finds a few open doors here and there in Paris, one is allowed inside into this other living, breathing, very warm. And supportive, lovely, lovely place, but it takes its own time to get there. And luckily, I I I, I had the schedule mm-hmm. in putting the book together, which allowed me to be patient enough. And in fact, I stayed in Paris for a year to just really, you know, become a part of the place, so I could report back to readers on uh, about the true essence of what Parisians eat, not the usual grab bag of cliches that you see in travel magazines or, 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 or on food websites, but instead really have a look, what, what do Parisians really eat? How do they really live? What are their lives really like? What is it really like to be French and Parisian in this really beautiful and complicated old, 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 old city. And, you know, that takes its time. That's not just something, you know, that you can dial in on a, on a precise schedule. Mm. You have, you, 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 one has to be sensitive to the circumstances of the particular place. Um, Jim, I wanted to ask you a question about languages. So, obviously, languages are important to understanding food cultures, but how, just how important they are. Like, I wanted to see, to me, they're important, but I'm also sometimes surprised how people who might not be fluent in Spanish or French, they can capture something that somebody else wasn't able to capture. So, tell me about languages. Tell our listeners, like, what's your relationship with well, languages. I, I think I probably speak kitchen in about 13 languages. <laughs> but well, you that. know I go I go back to the story that I was telling you about being in, in, in Jakarta for those first few at sea weeks or months really and um that's where actually I began to learn Indonesian was in that kitchen with that staff and realizing that, oh, this thing that I'm holding in my hand that I would call a purple onion, they call it bawang. And, you know, and then, and then the story, and then the story begins. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what is so cool about kitchens around the world 
it, you could be, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a very basic kitchen somewhere in Southern India, where there's, you know, a, 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 the, the fuel, the fire source is, is, is wood burning wood on the ground with, with a very basic handmade clay pot just sitting right on top of the fire. And, you know, in, in Southern India, they don't, they don't even, you, you know, you don't you have a kitchen countertop. You actually, you cook on the floor and, you know, you have a cutting board or a plate on, on which are, which are cutting things. And, you know, you, you put the things that you've cut into a bowl once you've cut them. Basically, that's not really fundamentally different than what you're going to find in uh, a, 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 full, a, a relatively um, uh, well-equipped kitchen in an apartment in Dublin. It's basically the same things that are be- being used. There's the heat source, there's the pots, there's the knives, the, the, there are the cutting boards, there's the ingredients, there's the water, there's the water source. These are the things that constitute a kitchen. And, you know, pretty much wherever you are, you know, you're really only looking at about 200 words. And so if you can acquire those words in different mm-hmm. places, boy, you're, you're, you're basically just in like Flynn. You're, you're, you're almost guaranteed entry into this very specific cultural place. And boy, what a magical place it is. Jim, I actually had a question for you um, for, and I know also because like I said, you were such a mentor to these young journalists, um, but what would be, okay, I want, I want to know like what would be concrete advice, but also, you know, when you're talking about these immersive experiences, often it costs money, it costs time. So like concretely, what would you advise for someone who wants to be the next person? <laughs> well, thank you, young lady. Um, <laughs> but you know, here's the thing. Like, I, um, you know, didn't didn't specifically become a journalist who wrote about food until my forties. Okay, I'm 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 58 now. I started my career you know really only very very seriously as a as a as a severe contributor you know in the late 1990s um i i, w- I was writing articles about all sorts of places that 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 those food cultures i i was in love with and and places i was familiar with um i didn't start all of that until relatively late late in the game i you know prior to then had just been a, a great lover of of food and the cultures of food you know i was a teenager who would check out cookbooks um you know mater joffrey taught me how to teach in or, sorry taught me how to cook indian food through cookbooks that i checked out at the san carlos public library you know and 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 and, and then you know i found myself in a variety of, of different different you know career paths along the way. I mean, when I got out of college, I actually worked in the film industry in Los Angeles for many years. Um, and then I, and then I became a, a, a journalist, but another kind of journalist, I was writing about, uh, theater and fashion for about a decade. All the while I was always the food guy. I was always the one who had just discovered, you know, the the so the Georgian, as in, you know, former Soviet Georgian market that had just opened up in some far off neighborhood in Brooklyn. And I would, you know, take the subway out there and I would fill my backup pack up with, you know, things that I didn't really know and understand and I wanted to get to know and understand them better. So I'd bring them back to my kitchen. So I'd always been that person, but in terms of actually codifying it into a, you know, a a, a career path, a thing that I did creatively, that didn't come till relatively late in the game. I had never honestly wanted to spoil it before then. I, I, I loved food and cooking and, and, and learning new ingredients and traveling the world to, to appreciate food so much that I didn't want to risk 
I didn't want to risk tainting it by turning it into a job, by turning it into something that I had to do. I didn't like, I didn't want to take that risk, but eventually I did. And I'm glad that I did because, you know, it's, it's worked out relatively well so far. And it's something that I really enjoy and love in terms of like advising people you know, I'm I'm so confused these days by so many young people who come to me. My gosh, they're 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 26 years old. They're 27 years old. And they already have all of these things that they have planned out, and you know, res, resume uh, resume things that they've checked off on their list of of accomplishments toward their goal of being a food writer. And I'm like. Do you really want to be doing that? How do you know that? How do you know that? Are you really writing about? I actually, I have to Sorry. say. I'll, 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 I'll stop. I'll, um, I'll keep going. I'll finish my thoughts super quickly. Um, um, I mean, how do you know that? How do you know that you want to be a food writer? Have you have you gone out into the world enough and 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 ascertained that? Are you sure of it? Do you really 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 have it in your in your blood? Um, I was going to say that um, I find with and again I'm going to sound like a cranky old person and I know that you and I have you are about- May. I know I'm such a cranky old person, but um, I feel like there's a brand of young people, like there's a brand of young people that are like, oh, we're food adventurers. And they're like, you know, are you a food adventurer? I'm like, no, I like to go to places. Like I, you know, I've traveled, I have it in my blood, but I'm not going, you know, I'm like, I'm not, I was like, so if you're going to go to Carcassonne to eat this particular cassoulet, like, are you talking to the people? Are you sitting, you know, like, are you like strolling down the streets? Are you going to the market or are you just specifically going for that cashier? Well, and they look at me like I'm crazy. Sorry if I cut you off. Um, you know, you nope. know, you bring up something that, that, that actually is a, is a contemporary pet peeve of mine where, where I see so many people traveling these days, young, 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 <laughs> young folks, older folks, it's really not age specific, who come to a new place, say Mexico City, and they've designed weeks and weeks and weeks in advance this kind of prepackaged five-day trip and on Monday they will you know go to this gallery and they will eat at this restaurant they have a reservation at eight o'clock at this restaurant um, you know all of this stuff that is there is um, filling their itinerary actually is something that they got off of like internet lists after off of internet top 10 lists and they've crafted together a story you, 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 I'm sorry and they've crafted together a, a journey out of that and it's like my gosh that just completely takes the spontaneity out of like everything why don't you just like check into your why don't you just check into your Airbnb or why don't you just check into your hotel and you know like unpack your bag and I don't know maybe get a bottle of water maybe take a nap you know, and then like, you know, go out and walk into the place that you're, you've just arrived in and maybe you'll find a diner and maybe you'll sit down in that diner and you'll start, you know, a, a fun, friendly conversation with a waitress and, you know, and you'll, you'll, you'll start to understand that new place if it's Mexico City even in a way that is so much better and more real and fully dimensional than some prefab internet created to-do list when you arrive in a certain place and you're traveling with all your best friends. It's like, you know, the (laughs) world is an amazing, amazing, amazing place. Jump out into it. Dive into it. It will, it, it, it will take you. It will be able to withstand you. In fact, you'll probably have a blast along the way. Jim, I wanted to say um, one of my pet peeves is when people um, 
go to Spain. Like I, I've lived in many different parts of Spain and the world. And I mean, I know a lot of people I have a lot of contacts and there's people who will be, who will tell me, oh, I went to Madrid and I did this. And I'm like, wait, why didn't you ask me? I find that so bizarre. So imagine if I said to you, oh, I'm going to Mexico, but I wouldn't ask you a question. And I think I've written a listicle about all the things that you've said, and that sounds very shallow, but I think, but I think it's it's fascinating, and it's like the advice you're saying, love people, eat with people, observe people, and I think we are not doing that. We're observing our bloody phone, and we do a search by location, and we see, oh, what is that hot dude eating? I'm going to go there, and... No, I'm okay, gonna have Blanca, a little rant here, Blanca, but just the Blanca, same. Yeah, Blanca, Blanca, hot dude. When and what is he eating? Is is still I think okay. <laughs> yeah, for... but he's eating. He's having cappuccino. I'm like he's in he's in Valencia where you could be having horchata, and you have these different type of churros called fartons, and he's having a cappuccino well, you in know Valencia. What? The I'm real, like, the real sorry, problem, guys. The real problem with from the your... internet is you don't actually know that he's in, in Valencia, you know, having that thing. It could be like in a strip mall in Tallahassee. We just don't know because that's a close-up shot. Shot, sorry. That is a close-up shot. But listen, <laughs> you know, what, what, what I recommend to, you know, people, people ask me where to go, where to eat, where to stay, all the time and you know 99.9% of the time I don't don't have an answer I you know I I just I tell them to go you know where 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 they go <laughs> but when people do for example first come to Mexico City and they ask me where to go really probably what they're meaning is you know do should I go to this fancy restaurant or should I go to that fancy restaurant neither place I would go anyway, ever. But instead, what I recommend to people is go to La Merced Market, La Merced Market. And it is um, a market that has roots that go back to the pre-colonial era in Tenochtitlan. But the market really, really, really grew in the post-colonial era. And so essentially you know, it's a market that's been there about five centuries, okay? And it's still there in the same location. And by and large, the same foods and ingredients that are being sold are essentially the same foods and ingredients of five centuries ago, okay? And you go to this place, and I mean, you can spend five days there and still only see a small percentage of it, but it's, it's, it's vast, and it's just this kaleidoscope of different colors, ingredients, foods, activity. It's just complete sensory overwhelmment. Go there. Don't go and blow $350 on a fancy meal at some restaurant where basically there are no Mexicans eating at in the evening anyway because Mexicans eat eat their main meal, you know, around 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon. They don't eat at 8 o'clock at night like they do in New York City. They eat in the afternoon. Go to this market instead. Go to this market instead, and you're going to be so wiped out when you get back to your hotel that you're probably just going to want to crash anyway, you know, but it will be so enriching, and you're going to remember these colors and smells from that market as long as you live. Jim, thank you so much for talking to us. (laughs) You are, as always, the inspiration. (laughs) <laughs> you are so revitalizing. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's great to it's great to talk to you guys. I I hope I didn't I hope I didn't rattle on endlessly. <laughs> like please with this guy just stop talking, but I I I just I really think that it's important to, you know, have a have an alternative mindset and just keep 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 free thinking and the the future is looking great and the fact 
again, like I was saying, that, you know, that we have the great gift to be able to share food together, that we can share techniques, recipes, ingredients. Mm. I mean, what what great pleasure and joy is that? And I think that that's something we could all use a little bit of right, right about now. Headstuff is Ireland's largest podcast network. There's something for everyone here from gossip, social justice, film, politics, and yes, food, which of course means us, the Spice Bags podcast. So what does being a Headstuff Plus member mean? Well, for just five euros a month, yes, that's five euros a month, you get early access to shows, merchandise, and bonus materials. For example, in our Spice Bags journey, we have had so many conversations that we have had to reluctantly trim from episodes, and you can find them on our page on Headstuff Plus, like Ahmed Didi's Michelin Education, and also from season two, the infectiously wonderful Venezuelan food producers and chefs who have made Ireland their home. The bonus material is not to be missed, but more importantly, by being a member, you are also helping to support Irish podcasts like ours and enabling this community of creative voices to continue. For more information on how to become a member, visit headstuffpodcast.com. Hey guys, can I just take a minute? I just wanted to remind our listeners that we are part of the Headstuff Podcast Network and there are so many amazing shows in the network and today I wanted to talk a little bit about one particular one. Here we go. Come on, Sissy That Pod, let's get thickening! Are you a fan of the Emmy Award-winning show RuPaul's Drag Race? Do you think about Roxy Andrews at the bus stop? And do you belong in Party City? Well, Sissy That Pod is the podcast for you. Join me, James, and my co-host, Keen. Is there something on my face? As we chat weekly about the runway realness, sickening shade, and backstage buffoonery. That's right, whether it's new episodes of Drag Race US, UK, or All-Stars. Sissy That Pod will spill the tea with a new episode for you within 24 hours. So make good choices and subscribe to Sissy That Pod from the Headstuff Podcast Network and we'll leave you gagging on our eleganza. Now, let the music play! Guys, what a fabulous interview. Um, I know that Jim, or do I, can I call him Jim? Do I call him James? Yeah, Jim, Jim. No? I mean, yeah. He's such an um, amazing personality. I've never met him. Um, obviously, I have read Saver. I, I know of Jim, but I, and also just briefly looked through his beautiful Mexico City um, cookbook. Um, but I felt that I really got to know him in that interview and I feel like he's a very, um, you know, his character really comes through and I, and I, it's amazing that in the book that he's managed to not hold that back, but just like merge it into this, um, you know, to showcase what he really wanted to do in that book. It's just, it's a fantastic piece and I, and I know we'll get into that, but um, just to say, May, it must have been amazing to work with him and he is he is such a fab character, isn't he? Oh, Personality, yeah. No, yeah. He's, a, he's, a, he's a joyride and he is, um, and one learns so much from him, but yeah. you know, he's always going to be pushing you into the kitchens, into yeah. the markets and, um, and, and getting you to know people, strangers. Um, that's Jim's style. Yeah. Um, Blanca, did you um, enjoy interviewing him, speaking with him, and what was the main kind of, you know, you've you've looked, you've read the book. Uh, what what was the main kind of thing that it it that hit you when you when you read it? I have to say that um, I'm feeling very teenagery, but I did a <laughs> listicle of the things he said, and I thought we should all remember when we're writing about other cultures or when we're interested in something that it's about community. So he did say, eat with others, you know, mm. go and eat with other people, go in and eat with your Brazilian friend or your Chinese friend, then cook with others. I think, you know, sometimes we tend to stick to the people that we know from our country and, and we miss out on all these wonderful experiences. He said one thing that I think in this day and age is very important. He said, go to a market. Mm. It's so boring to see people having cappuccinos in Brazil or Madrid and not having the traditional things. So run to a market. There's so many markets all over the world and try to find your way from there. See what the locals are doing. See what they're buying. Talk to them. 
I thought that was the best advice. Don't book a trip to go somewhere and book your Michelin star restaurant. That's not going to tell you a lot about the culture, is it? Or if that's part of it, be part of it. But also get the local experience. Get the local experience. He said something that um, I love languages and I've always been fascinated with learning languages and speaking them. But he said something very interesting. You don't need to speak the language, but you do need to learn the kitchen language. And he said he spoke... He said 12 kitchen languages. 15. 15. 15. Yeah. I love that. that and he so said cool. he, every language, 15 languages. you need to learn 200 words. And I, I was almost thinking that's almost like a book or a blog where you have a little list for Spain with all the words you need to know. And then you can cook with that person and say cuchara or paella. It's, it's that was really good advice. It's so true. My brother's a chef um, based in Berlin for 10 years now. And when he moved to Germany, he had no German, which is why he kind of picked Berlin, because it's this melting pot of of uh, cultures. But you also don't need German necessarily every day to get by initially. But as a chef, you know, you do need to get by in mm. a kitchen. And he worked first when he went over there in an Irish uh, German restaurant, which he was fine to get by in. But he actually then decided to leave there and immerse himself in a German kitchen. And it was because he wanted to learn the language of the kitchen. And then from that kitchen, he was able to go out and find the job that he really wanted, you know, that sort of way. So it's just that thing of learning the language of a kitchen. I think also for Jim, um, there is um, the sense of adventure, right? So Mm -hmm. even if he said, okay, you're here, you're eating this perfect meal in a restaurant. So for Jim, what he would train is like, be nice to the wait staff. I think, you know, be nice to the wait staff. Try to get invited. Get to know them. Get to know them. Try to get invited into the kitchen. Try to get invited into the kitchen. Try to um, not just meet the chef who is in charge, not just the chef, but the sous chefs. And also, I think that something from working with Jim, one of the holy grails when you are in a strange country is to get invited to somebody's house. Mm. And what are the steps that are required to do that? Yeah. And, you know, and it is about and it's 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 work. Yeah. And look, I think it was just that thing that he spoke about that I took as well, which was the, you know, when you travel and I've always loved this, like I like to plan a certain amount. I like to know maybe maybe where I'm going to lay my head the first night when I arrive, these kind of things. Um, And yes, I may look up a couple of restaurants that I definitely want to hit up that I know have been I usually get recommendations from friends who are either from there or have been there themselves. But then what I do is I just, you know, the spontaneity, as he talked about, of just if you do go to a local market or you do get speaking to locals to take their advice or if you do get invited to their homes or, you know, that kind of thing, not to plan the whole thing so that you're just left with some sort of scripted listicle that everyone has on that are on loads of websites, you know. But to read a cookbook helps before. Do your research before. And the last thing on the listicle was give a voice to others. Sorry, I thought that was so important. And I think in this book, he's invisible and he's giving a voice to all these people. I think we also need to remember that when we're writing recipes that, you know, step back. Don't want to be always the protagonist like, oh, Blanca's best chow mein. No, you just step back and say, well, do I know somebody who might know this? And just, you know, say I got this recipe from so-and-so. I am amazed at how many people put out recipes and we're expected to believe they just pulled it out of thin air. And I love writers like Nigella Lawson who always credit other people. So credit other people. Don't don't try and take all the protagonism. I thought that that's a very he's very restrained in this book that he is talking about other people all the time and sharing their stories. I think there's a thing that sometimes people feel, and and I've heard this before, that they feel, oh, are you upset that somebody wrote about Spain? Or, you know, I'm only upset when you're making croquetas with Parma ham, to be honest, which is Italian, by the way. I think I'm delighted when people want to do things about Spain because it benefits if Spain is doing well, it benefits everybody. I think Mm. that this whole gatekeeper, oh, I am the only person that can cook Galician empanada. That's ridiculous. I don't believe in that. Mm. But I also think it's it's almost like a balance. You know, I believe that everyone, we all love food. We can all write about it. But it's that love. It's that showing that love. You know, you went out of your comfort zone and you went and talked to somebody, even Mm. if you don't speak the language. I think that's what Jim has done really well. I completely agree. And I, excuse me, I completely agree. And I recently attended a um, 
culture, a food cultural mindset workshop with Malika Basu um, uh, online, obviously. And it was it was around she discussed. She literally made that point. And it was because people were asking, is it OK to attend a workshop or a class from someone a cooking class from someone who's doing, you know, um, sushi, but they're not Japanese themselves. And it's like, well, yes, if that person is, have they lived in Japan? Have they trained to to make sushi? And also, even if not, are they giving respect to that cuisine? I think it's all about respect. And that's the same with writing on food. I think I'm Irish. I'm a member of the Irish Food Writers Guild and I'm, I mostly write on Irish food because it's what I've, I've always lived here. I've grown up here. But I have also traveled and I have written on other cuisines. And when I tr- write a travel piece, you know, I've always done cooking classes when I go abroad in usually in someone's home or in a local cooking school. I always go to the markets, as you said, Blanca. And I feel like, you know, when you write a travel piece, you have to write that local knowledge and give an essence of of the place, of the cuisine, of the culture um, and pay respect to that. And if you're doing that, then that's being appropriate in the right way. Just going back to giving a voice to others, uh, and this goes to editors out there, a lot of the times it's not about people writing the correct recipe. It's also about, oh, who is the best person to write this recipe? So I'd love to see more of that reach out to people from different countries. Ireland is so diverse. There's 125,000 Polish people. There's 24,000 Nigerian. I'd love to see those people writing the recipes. If you like what you heard or better yet, have a question or response or comment to anything that we said today, we really want to hear from you. So please contact us at Instagram at Spice Bags Pod. Twitter as well is the same Spice Bags Pod. Or you can email us at Spice Bags Pod at gmail.com. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.